All right, well, let me pray for us, and then we are going to dive into week 13 of our stuff tonight. So let's pray together, and then we'll dive in. Father, I thank you that we have the chance to be able to gather, to be able to talk about your word, to be able to talk about how you have been active in history. And Father, I thank you that um, we have reliably recorded for us in your word an accounting of these things. And so, Father, I'm just thankful for um, an untold number of copyists and translators who uh, have transmitted the, the scriptures to us today. And so, Father, I'm just thankful for that. Um, God, I pray that you would help us understand what it is that we are looking at tonight. And as is my custom, I would just ask for you to pray for me, um, that the words I say would be clear and be beneficial and be accurate, and that I would say nothing out of harmony with the gospel. If you would, just take a moment and pray for me. Father, I thank you for the chance to be able to teach tonight, to be able to talk about some possibly difficult things with uh, the Babylonian exile and the captivity. And God, I pray that you would give me the words to say at the right time and the right words um, to say in the right way so that we might be able to understand rightly what it is that you are doing in history. And so, Father, we thank you for this chance. We pray that you would send your spirit to help us comprehend and to give us endurance to understand. And uh, Father, we pray that this would happen for our good and for your glory. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all go ahead and come on, find your seats. Um, we're going to do a quick recap from where we were last session, which was not last week in here, but I did record a video. And what we did uh, in that video is I basically talked about the official destruction of Israel, of the northern kingdom at the hand of the Assyrians. And then we jumped down south and talked about Josiah and his reforms. And then we talked about how the Babylonians uh, took over the Assyrian Empire. And then we talked about basically right up until the destruction of Judah. We got to that point where it happens. We're kind of peeking into tonight's material. Um, and that's where we kind of left it off. However, the big thing that I want us to keep in mind is that this moment in Israel's history where the northern kingdom is destroyed and the southern kingdom, Judah, is about to be taken off into exile after Jerusalem is destroyed, this is the low point of Israel's history. Like up until now, this is the low point. And like we need to feel the gravity of that setting. But what we also need to see is that God is working through this destructive process, right? We saw that from the last session. We'll see it even more this one, yeah? So where are we heading tonight? Real simple. We are going to talk about the Babylonian captivity. So after Jerusalem is destroyed um, by Nebuchadnezzar and then the exile is on and everyone gets taken to Babylon, they're going to be in captivity. And then in order to talk about what happens in the captivity and how they return, we have to talk about a revolution. We have to talk about how the Persians or the Medo-Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire take over the Babylonians. And then we will get to the return from captivity. So this is really all we're talking about tonight. Just to preview where we're heading, we'll talk about the captivity and the return from captivity this week. Next week, we'll talk all about the Greeks. We'll talk about Alexander the Great. We'll talk about the Diatikoi states. We'll talk about Ptolemy and all them boys, right? We'll talk about that. And then the week after, we're going to talk about the Romans and your boy Johnny B. And we are done, right? So that's where we're heading. Yeah? All right. So tonight, where we are, I want to prepare us for a couple of things. I'm going to read probably three or four passages about three or four times each. 
And the reason I want to do that is because I want to fill our heads with some repetition um, about some pretty key passages that we need to have in our heads when it comes to the Babylonian captivity, all right? So as we're talking about the captivity, there is one figure that kind of stands above the rest as a prophet before and during the captivity. And who is that guy? Does anybody know? He's also called the weeping prophet. Jeremiah, right? And he writes this book, Jeremiah. We see that um, detailed. We actually talked about how Jeremiah and how the rest of the scriptures were put together um, in Jeremiah 36. It's an excellent text on how the Bible was assembled. But he also writes a whole other book called Lamentations. And it's an acrostic poem that is lamenting the fall of uh, Jerusalem and the fall of Judah, but also is looking forward to deliverance, right? So Jeremiah is this seminal figure that we're going to reference multiple times. And he actually warns Judah about this impending captivity. There were these false prophets who were running around and they were saying, peace, peace. There's, there's nothing to worry about, guys. God's going to take care of us. We are clearly God's favorites among his people. That's basically their message. And the reason that they said that was because what happened to those wicked folks up north? What happened to them? Well, they're gone. Like, we're left. Don't worry about it. God is pleased with us. We've got the temple. We're at Jerusalem. Stop worrying. This is what Jeremiah chapter 21, verse 7 says. After speaking about uh, what was going to come with the Babylonians, um, this is what uh, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 21, 7. Afterward, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people in this city who survived the pestilence, sword, and famine. So you can tell things are already not good. There's pestilence, sword, and famine already. I will give them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives, who shall strike them down with the edge of the sword, and he shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. So these false prophets are saying peace, and Jeremiah is saying no. Like, there is judgment coming. A couple chapters later in chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. This is going to be a big one for us, so write that down. Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. This is what Jeremiah says. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations, speaking of Judah, Benjamin, the surrounding territories, these nations, they shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then verse 12 says, And then after 70 years, after they are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation, the land of the Chaldeans, and their for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Jeremiah was the only guy, it seemed, who was telling them, this is going to happen. You have got to start trusting in the Lord now. It's going to get bad, and as soon as it gets bad, it's going to get worse. But no, don't worry about it. Peace, peace. Babylonians aren't coming, and Jeremiah is out there just screaming into the wind, right? He's even told that at the early part of his ministry. God tells him, hey, get up, go speak. By the way, no one's going to listen to you. Go yell into the void. That's what you're going to do for the rest of your life. In fact, it gets so bad, and Babylonians are on the doorstep of Jerusalem, that in Jeremiah chapter 42 through 44, um, it's obvious that the Babylonians are about to knock everything down and a whole group of people from Jerusalem flee to Egypt. And this whole time, Jeremiah has been saying, no, the Lord has not told us we can do that. We must stay put. You know what they do to him? They make him go. They force him to flee to Egypt. 
He eventually comes back, but it gets so bad that even Jeremiah gets drugged down to Egypt to try to avoid the Babylonians. That's how bad things are going for them. They are coming. Nebuchadnezzar is coming. He's already wiped out the Assyrians. He's basically got his eyes set on Jerusalem. He's eventually going to work his way towards Tyre here in a bit. We'll see. It's bad. Okay? He shows up in Jerusalem, and he knocks down the walls. He raids the palace. He destroys the temple, takes everything of value out. He takes anyone who's got any kind of skill. He imprisons them. Everyone else he kills. That's basically what Nebuchadnezzar does. Okay? But all this happens in two major deportations. And these dates are pretty firm. The dates that you're going to see later on hold with a very loose grip. But these dates seem to be fairly well attested. There are actually two major deportations that happened in 598 and then a couple years later in 596. And what happens there is if you go and read in 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 14, 2 Kings 24, 14 says this about Nebuchadnezzar. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and all the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. If you didn't have anything to bring to the table for Nebuchadnezzar, he either killed you or left you. You can have whatever's left. He didn't care. And then a little bit later in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 11, there's this second deportation a couple years later. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain, or Nebuchadnezzar Dan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. And so at the end of the day, there's only about 20,000 people who were actually taken into captivity in Babylon. Now, let me put this in context for you. Back in 1st... Samuel chapters 9 and 10, I believe, you see Saul gathering the armies of Israel to he's now made king and he's about to go make war, right? He gathers 200,000 men from Israel, from like the rest of the northern kingdom, what would become that? And he gathers 20,000 warriors from Judah alone. A little bit later, he actually gathers 30,000. And they're typically on horseback. That's how much his fighting force was that he gathered instantaneously. When Nebuchadnezzar goes back to Babylon, all that's left is 20,000. Like, are you seeing the scale of the destruction here? Of what it would require to go from that absurdly large number of your army to now there's only 20,000 people who are taken into captivity at all? This is bad. And Jeremiah has been saying this all along, that this is exactly what was going to happen, Right? So, Nebuchadnezzar sweeps through Judah, destroys everything, anything of value he takes with him, including people. If you've got some skill, I'm going to incorporate you back in the government. Everyone else, fend for yourself. And a couple of years later, he comes and sweeps up the rest of them. Yeah, that's what happens with Judah. From here on out, Judah, the, the kingdom of Judah in the south, doesn't exist anymore. Okay, If I slip up and call him Judah... Great. If I slip up and call them Israel, great. We're, we're talking about the same folks here. This is all that's left, right? All right. So there's these two major deportations, about 20,000 folks. So what was life like in Babylon? Who is the prophet that we actually get a glimpse as, what, as to what life is like in Babylon? Who's that prophet? I heard. Say it out loud for the rest of the class. Daniel. Daniel. 
Daniel. And so Daniel, we're going to read a little bit from him here in a little bit, but Jeremiah also actually gives us a little bit of input here that we see that the exiles were actually allowed to build houses in Babylon. Babylonians did a very good job historically of whenever they conquered an area, they would take the best and brightest and they would incorporate them into the government. Right? You see that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I apologize. I don't remember their actual Hebrew names. That's their Babylonian names. And then Daniel, I don't even remember his Babylonian name, but those four cats, like they are the example of what the Babylonians do. And when they would incorporate people into their, into their empire, they would put them to work. And if you're going to have people working, you got to make sure that they're taken care of. And Nebuchadnezzar ain't paying for that. So they put them to work and they could build houses. This is what Jeremiah 29 says. This is a letter that Jeremiah is writing to all the exiles who are in Babylon. And this is what uh, Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7 says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. Notice that God says, I'm the one who did this. This wasn't happenstance. This wasn't chance. I told you this was going to happen. I did it. This is what I want you to do. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And you can actually see some of this happening with Daniel in real time. Like he actually talks about how prosperous the nation of Babylon is. And he's in the city of Babylon. But here's my point. Like, do you not hear some of the echoes of what Adam and Eve were told back in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply. Don't decrease. Like your job is still to be image bearers. Yeah, but we lost our homeland. So? Yeah, but we don't have any power. So? Yeah, but we're roughed up. And? Build houses. Pray for the city. Their welfare will lead to your welfare. So if they're not off the hook. They still must be the people of God no matter where they are. There's some parallels there to what the nation of Judah, what Israel experienced in captivity, and what we experience as Christians today. Don't have time to get into that, but there you go. All right. So what we've already read is that exile is going to last for about 70 years. And depending on how you date the beginning and how you date the first stage of the return, it is 70 years, right? There is all sorts of information that gets us incredibly close to 70 years on the nose. Um, but how you date and when you date, which source you use, it kind of fudges a little bit. 70 years, like trust it. It's 70 years, okay? And we actually read that from Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12. Remember that. Told you it's an important one. This whole land is going to become a ruin, and they're going to serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And then verse 12, then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. All right? So there is clearly a demarcation of this is how long it's going to last. Word? All right. And then there was one other aspect that's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar's not done. Like he sweeps through Judah and eventually he moves up into the north and a little to the west at this place called Tyre. And he actually besieges this kingdom of Tyre, the city of Tyre. And something that we're going to talk about next week with Alexander the Great is that Nebuchadnezzar sieges this city for 13 years and couldn't take it. Alexander the Great, whenever he sweeps through, about 100 years later, he takes it in six months. Okay. Okay. 
So that's just to show you like the level of destruction that we're going to see with these nations as they keep building momentum. It gets worse and worse. The meat grinder is just going to keep kicking on. We went from the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans, and it's going to keep getting worse every time. Okay? So just hold that in your head. Nebuchadnezzar is still out there wreaking havoc in the area. So whenever Jeremiah says that you are going to serve this king and the nations, the lands around you, it's because Nebuchadnezzar is still under conquest right there. Yeah? And then lastly, we're eventually going to fast forward to the end of the Babylonian captivity. And the last king is this cat named Belshazzar. And we're going to see him uh, pop up in Daniel chapter 5. Um, in Daniel 5.30, this is whenever the writing on the wall, this is with Belshazzar. Um, Daniel actually calls him a king. Technically, he's not a king. We'll talk about that incredibly briefly here in a bit. That is the Babylonian captivity. Y'all got any questions about that before I give us our big point, our big takeaway? We just flew through one of the most paradigmatic events in all of biblical history, and we did it in 16 minutes. Okay? That's just the pace at which we got to go. Any questions about the Babylonian captivity? All right. I want to read for you again. Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years, and then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans. I'll point them out here in the next slide. For their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. That is something that we have got to see did not come out of a vacuum. Do you remember me telling you what the prophets were? Like the two-word phrase of what they were doing is that they were covenantal enforcers. What they would do is they would hold up the covenant and then they would look at the behavior of the nation and say, are you doing this? No? Well, then this is what you can expect. And in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, you see the curses and the blessings. But I want to read Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. This is a bigger chunk, but I just want us to hear it. Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 6. Speaking of these curses here. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curses which I have set down before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, implying that God has kicked them out of the land, and then you return to the Lord, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. You should be here in Deuteronomy 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, 4, and 5, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You should love Him with your, all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, all your strength, right? Um, you should hear that echoing. Verse 3, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Jeremiah is saying, hey, make no mistake, I am sending you. Jeremiah didn't come up with that. Moses had told him long ago because that's what God promised, right? Verse 4, If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and then you may make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. Verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Here's my point. The return from captivity in Babylon will supersede even the deliverance from Egypt. 
it is going to supersede the exodus from Egypt. Up until this point, any time anyone in Israel was thinking about the goodness and faithfulness of God, what was the one event they always looked back on as like, this is how God is going to save? The exodus. I want you to hear that God is still working out the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and all them boys. He's still working it out. He told them in Deuteronomy 30, this is what was going to happen. Fast forward a few centuries and you get to Jeremiah and he's saying the same thing. This is what Jeremiah 16 verses 14 and 15, write that down. Jeremiah 16 verses 14 and 15 say this. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, Ha! As the Lord who brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. We're not ever going to say that anymore. Verse 16. But what we will say is, As the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Jeremiah is over here saying there's not going to be peace. It's going to be destruction and it's going to be nearly a century of suffering before you get to come back. But make no mistake, according to Jeremiah 16, 14, and 15, he says, but when you come back, it is going to set a precedent like nothing else before. In fact, the thing that we used to look back at as the way that God saves as the exodus out of Egypt you're not even going to say, yeah, that was a big deal, but like it's nothing compared to what he did from the captivity. Are you seeing that? The return from captivity is going to supersede all this stuff. Why? Because God's in the business of saving people. He's in the business of saving people. We saw that with the Exodus, yes, but you see it even more clearly here with Jerusalem being absolutely laid waste and only 20,000 dudes make it out alive. He's going to call them back home. He's going to make them more prosperous than their fathers were in that same land. We have been asking over and over again in this series, how is relationship to be restored? And the answer is only ever always God's covenantal faithfulness. And God's covenantal faithfulness is seen in Jeremiah when he's saying, no, 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 he's going to send you out for 70 years, but he's also going to call you back. We also see it in Deuteronomy 30 whenever Moses says, I will scatter you. It's going to happen. But I'll also bring you back. It's only because God is ever covenantally faithful to his own word that he will restore. That's the only reason we have any hope for us to be able to be in relationship with him. Word? That, I think, is the lesson of the captivity. Really. All right. Questions about the Babylonian captivity right there before we look at a map. All right, so I told y'all earlier uh, last week, week before, that every time that you have someone who is paying tribute as a vassal, um, they're either going to keep paying up or there's going to be a big problem. There's either going to be a revolution or there's going to be destruction. Well, what happens is the next time that we see somebody uprise uh, against the Babylonians, it turns into a revolution. So I want to show you this right here, all this green. That is the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. Okay, and this is basically at the time of Queen Esther. So this is whenever Esther is hanging out in Susa and Ekbatana. We'll talk about that here in a second. But this is how big of an area that the Persian Empire was. 
It is not this big for the Babylonians. Basically, draw a line from there in the middle where it says Media down to Persia to the southeast of there. If you kind of draw a line from there, everything to the west, that's the Babylonian Empire. Everything to the east was kind of this unaffiliated group of people who were steppe nomads. That's Afghanistan, that's Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, that area, right? But what happens, we'll talk about this in a bit, is when the Persians come up, there's this cat named Cyrus. We're going to introduce him here in a bit. He's from that southern area down by the Persian Gulf where it says Persia. And he's going to go conquer this place right south of where you see media, Ekbaktana. Ekbaktana is a place where in the book of Esther, they have to go get some court records and they have to go find a letter in Nehemiah and Ezra. And where do they go find that letter that the king wrote? It's at the Chronicle storehouse in Ekbaktana, right? So those are critical places. So this is the map that we're looking at. Eventually, if you look all the way to the far left-hand side where you see Thrace and Lydia, that gray area, the Hellenistic lead, League, that's the Greeks. We'll talk about them next week, okay? Is everyone sufficiently oriented? All right. So let us talk about the Persians now. Um, after Nebuchadnezzar died, a whole bunch of really jacked-up, janky kings ruled after him. And basically, when Nebuchadnezzar consolidated his rule, basically all the way to Egypt, everything was great. The next couple of kings are just not great. It just, it's not as good as Nebuchadnezzar, right? Uh, so just, that's an oversimplification, but just hold on to that. Um, we've already introduced the Persians. Um, this Persian empire is more technically referred to as the Medo-Persian empire because there's two major areas, the Medes, are from Media, a place up there in the northern plateau of what is present-day Iran, and then the Persians are from southern Iran. Um, today, if you hear people talk about being Iranian, people who are of Iranian descent, a lot of times they'll just call themselves Persian because that's what they are, right? So the Medo-Persian Empire is about to have a revolt. But before that happens, there's this cat named Cambyses, and he's a Persian, and he marries into the Median family. So he marries either a queen or a princess. It's hard to tell what her role is, but she is up north in Media, and he marries her to form an alliance between Persia and Media, right? And this happens all the time in history. Whenever you have one powerful family in, in charge of one area, and you wanna have a treaty with another area, you have some kind of marriage exchange. In fact, we've already seen this happen in the biblical storyline with whom? Say it out loud. Solomon did this all the time, right? This is a very common practice in history. So Cambyses, he marries this lady and uh, he basically unites relationally the Medes and the Persians and he has a son named Cyrus. He's not named Cyrus the Great yet. He will be named the Great after a little while, right? So he is the son of Cambyses. Word, are we tracking with that? We just need to get to that point to say, we are now at Cyrus. So what happens with Cyrus? Cyrus the Great uh, is the son of Cambyses. And what he does is he starts a revolt from Elam is where he is located. And he takes Ekbaktana. And so that relational situation that we have between the Medes and the Persians, it now turned hostile and he took them over. And so now it's not just a matter of family relations that this dude who's half Median, half Persian, he's 100% in charge, right? Militarily, he unites the Medes and the Persians, right? And this is all on that uh, eastern edge of the Babylonian Empire and all of that area to India and Afghanistan. Like 
that's a huge chunk of area. So he is now in control of that, and he unites the Medes and the Persians. And after a little bit, he forces an issue, and where do you think he's going? Who's the big baddie in town? Who has all the land in control? The Babylonians. And so Cyrus marches to Babylon, and on the way he fights a battle at Opus or Ophis. Um, it's just north uh, along the Tigris River of Babylon, and he defeats uh, the Babylonians there. He goes down south of a place called Sukkoth, and he just walks in, and then he walks, literally walks into Babylon without a fight. He had destroyed the Babylonian army out in the field, but whenever he gets to Babylon, they welcome him. Now, I told you earlier that Belshazzar, Belshazzar was the last Persian king, or excuse me, Babylonian king. Technically, he was the son of the king, and his dad, who was actually the king, had absconded to a desert oasis because he was tired of being in Babylon, and he just basically retired. And whenever he did that, there was these uh, um, ceremonial and religious rites that every year he was supposed to go back to Babylon, and the people would basically recrown him king. Well, he hadn't done that for like a decade. And so when this new guy in town, Cyrus, after this now known as Cyrus the Great, comes rolling in saying, hey, I'll make all your dreams come true, the Babylonians are like, rock on. And they welcome him with open arms. So that happens in 539. So this is right in the middle of the Babylonian captivity for Israel, for Judah. They are in Babylon at this time. And so now Cyrus is now the emperor of the largest empire that the history of the world had ever seen at that point. Are you tracking with that? Are you tracking with how big a deal that is? Questions about Persia, Medes, Babylonians. We just flew through again about another century and a half of history right there. Any questions about the Medes and the Persians? All right. I want to read for you Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, again. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for how long? But what happens after those 70 years? When they're completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. The land of the Chaldeans, which is the southern end of Babylon, which is like where Kuwait and Iraq meet, right? That's the Chaldeans. I will punish them for their iniquity, declares the Lord. In fact, if you go read Habakkuk chapter 2, I referenced Habakkuk a couple weeks ago where Habakkuk was praying and asking God, like, hey, why are you not doing anything? And God's like, oh, no, no, I'm doing something. I'm, I'm stirring up the Babylonians. They're going to come and they're going to completely wipe you out. I'm going to send, send the Chaldeans. And the reason that I want you to see that is because that's the answer he gives Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 1. But in Habakkuk chapter 2, he talks about the Babylonians, but in a very different way. He actually talks about how he's going to judge them too. So I want to read two snippets from Habakkuk chapter 2. This is verse 8. Habakkuk, the Lord says to them, Because you have plundered many nations, speaking of Babylon, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. All those folks that you had under your thumb, they're going to plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. This is just this refrain of how bad it is. Skip down to verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, you who pour out your wrath and make them drunk, in order to gaze at their nakedness. This is something the Babylonians would do, was force people to party. And then when they get drunk, they take advantage of them, right? But this is also symbolic language of how they are molesting the nations around them, right? 
Verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in your Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon you and your glory. And what Habakkuk is being told there by God is like, hey, drink it up, Babylon. Live it up while you can. Because what you're doing to these other nations, the Lord's going to do to you. And so here's the point that I want you to see. God remained faithful to his word that he would judge Babylon. Like you're getting that, right? Deuteronomy 30 is about how Israel's going to be sent to exile. But yeah, there's going to be a chance to come back. Jeremiah 25 is constantly, we've read it multiple times, of how you are going to go into exile. But at the end of that time, God's going to judge the Babylonians. And here's the application that I want us to see. You can trust that the Lord will bring about justice in the end. You can trust that. Now, this is going to be really hard for somebody who is living in Babylon at the time, and they're reflecting on Habakkuk, and they're reflecting on, man, I thought the Babylonians were supposed to get theirs, and it seems like they're not. Yeah, we'll trust. Deuteronomy chapter 32, this is what God says. Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and 36. God says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants when He sees that their power is gone and that there is none remaining, bond or free. And there was a cat named Paul who's writing to these Romans and he picks up on this exact verse and this is the version that we're more familiar with. What Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 12 is, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Here's my point. God has remained faithful this entire time. Has Israel remained faithful? No, that's why they're in this boat to begin with. The question of how is relationship to be restored? Only, ever, always because of God's covenantal faithfulness, including what He does to Babylon. Are y'all seeing that? Again, when you put this together, I think this is the story of the captivity. Yeah? All right. Any questions about the Medes, Persians, captivity up to this point before we were returning from captivity? All right, we're blowing through it. All right, so the captivity is over, 70 years. I'm going to show you some dates up here. Do me a favor, don't even write the dates down, okay? Don't worry about the dates. I just put them up there to give you a rough frame of reference. Look at the Scripture references. There are going to be three stages in which Israel is sent back to Judah, okay? They're not all going to leave at once, okay? That's not how this works. They're going to leave in stages about a decade and a half apart from each other, so it takes a while. Right? You remember me saying about the dating of how you get to 70 years is eh, kind of hard? Well, part of that's because it takes a while for everyone to get back home. So here's the first stage. If you go read Ezra, the first six chapters of Ezra, that's what's going on. Okay, So this is shortly after the Babylonians are done and Cyrus walks into Babylon. Okay, This is not far from that, because remember, you go from 539 to 538 and you start working your way down from there, right? And so this is shortly after that, and the two key figures there are these cats named Zerubbabel and Joshua. And Zerubbabel and Joshua, they're going to lead about 30,000 captives back to Israel. Now remember, how many folks went to Babylon the first time? 20,000, give or take. 
And what did Jeremiah tell him in Jeremiah 29? Hey, build houses, plant vineyards, have kids, pray for the welfare of the city. You don't get a pass. Y'all need to multiply. How many come back? 30,000 on the first go around. Now, they're not all ethnic Jews. There are other people who come along with them. You'll see that there are other folks from what was the old Assyrian and Babylonian Empire kind of caught up in this as well. But point is, more people are coming back on the first round than left the first time. Are you tracking with that? So you see Zerubbabel, who is the basically the governor of Judah. He's appointed by the Persians. Again, you see the Persians incorporating people into their government of their local areas, and they just incorporate them. Zerubbabel, his name literally means born in Babel. This was a guy, he had never even been to Jerusalem, and now he is going to be the governor over all of Judah. Zerubbabel is essentially the governor, and if you were with me in our study of Zechariah over the last year or so, we actually said that Zerubbabel is not the governor, he's really more like a king. And then Joshua, he is the high priest. So Zerubbabel and Joshua get a whole lot of play in these two books, Haggai and Zechariah. And Haggai and Zechariah are constantly talking about, hey, y'all need to get back to work. You need to do what the Lord told y'all to do. There is more to be done. We'll see that here in just a bit. But Haggai and Zechariah, those are the two of the last writing prophets. Eventually you have Nehemiah and Ezra, which are canonically in the English Bibles much earlier. They are actually after these cats. And then you have Malachi, which is the last book of the, New Te or the Old Testament. Okay, So that kind of situates you in the Bible. So Haggai and Zechariah, they are the prophets. Zerubbabel, who is like the king. Joshua, who is like the high priest. And now you've got Haggai and Zechariah, who are these priests. I'm not a genius, but I'm also not an idiot either. Come now, do you see how the Lord's starting to work and bring his people back into the land and you're starting to see that Jeremiah 25 and you're starting to see that Deuteronomy 30 play out? I'm going to bring you back and you're going to be more prosperous. Yeah? So that's the first stage. Second stage is essentially Ezra chapters 7 through 10. And this is about 15 years later or so. It's hard to tell. And under this time, this is whenever Cyrus is no longer around and this is where you have Darius or Darius, right? Darius and Darius, um, the same guy. They're the dude that normally starts fighting the Greeks. Uh, the Battle of Athens and the Battle of Marathon, that's Darius, that's Darius, that's this cat. He fights the Battle of Marathon with Athens, right? So this is the timeline. You start to see the Greeks starting to come up. But for our most important part, this is when the temple is actually completed. Right? King Darius actually sends a whole bunch of money and sends a whole bunch of materials for them to actually finish. Haggai and Zechariah was telling them, hey, finish the temple. You started laying the foundations and you got an altar and that's it. Finish the job, right? So they finish it. And then Ezra, he returns. Ezra's like a scribe. He's like a, a, an expert in the law. And he brings about 2,000 men with him. It's about 1780 and some other hangers on. So it's about 2,000 people. And it seems as though those 2,000 cats he brings are the ones that he can find that he thinks are Levites. Why would Ezra be trying to gather up Levites to bring back to Jerusalem? You've got a temple now. Well, how are we going to worship? Well, we got Joshua, the high priest, but we got any Levites? Who knows? So you've got to start getting some guys out. They start actually looking at family records to see who is actually a Levite to even see who's qualified to serve in the temple, 
That's the type of stuff they're working out during this time frame. Yeah, that's the second stage. And then the third stage, this is actually Nehemiah. So this is about, again, 15 years later, Nehemiah, he shows up. And what's the thing that Nehemiah does in Jerusalem? He doesn't build the temple. That's already built. He builds the walls. So for however long, Jerusalem has just been undefended, essentially. Still in ruins, essentially. He comes up. He talks with the king. He gets a charter to go back to Israel to build the walls of Jerusalem. And he does it in how many days? 52. He's got his boys literally one hand on a sword and one hand mixing mortar. And they do that for a month and a half until that thing is done, right? That's Nehemiah. And what happens with Nehemiah is that Ezra is there and they read from the book of the law. And now some things are happening. This is when stuff really starts popping off. So I want to give us a quick glance through Nehemiah and Ezra because Nehemiah and Ezra are basically the same time frame and they kind of switch places of chrono uh, chronology when you read them. But in Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10, this is when Ezra's reading from the law. At the end of him reading the law, there are people who are just like crying because they're hearing about, we're supposed to be keeping the Passover, and they hadn't been doing it. There's all these sins, and we have not repented. There are these guys who've got multiple wives, and what are we going to do with them? And the people are just losing it. And so what Ezra starts doing is he starts sending those 2,000 guys out into the people. And like as he reads something, he points and like, hey, did you understand what he just said? No. And then he would go, that priest would go and explain to the people all day long as they read through the terms of the covenant. What are prophets? They are covenantal enforcers. And so they read from the book of the law, and at the very end of that, Israel is just ripped to the heart. And this is what Nehemiah 9.38 says. After all this is done, it says, Because of all this, all the crying, all the wailing, all the repentance, because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And chapter 10 is a huge list of everyone who signs their name and says, Yep, we agree. We have been in sin. We deserve every bit of this. God is good. And so they basically reaffirm the covenant, and it is renewed in Nehemiah 9. But here's the point that I want us to make. We've already had everybody come back from captivity. The Babylonian captivity is essentially done. There are going to be some folks who are going to hang around. Um, it's unclear if like Mordecai and Ezra, uh, uh, Esther, if they are in this stage of like between the second and third, or maybe even after the third stage of return. There were people who stayed around in Babylon and in the Persian Empire. That's what we call the diaspora, the spreading of people. <clears throat> Excuse me. But overall, Israel is back in the land. They're back in the land. Excellent. They got the temple. Excellent. They got some priests. Excellent. They're making sacrifices and they've recommitted themselves to the covenant. What more could we hope for? And here's what we need to see. God was restoring Israel to the land, but there is more work to be done, right? From the outside looking in, it seems like everything is exactly the way it should be. But let me read something else for us. The question that we've been asking is, how is the relationship to be restored? It looks like Israel's doing all the right things. This is what Haggai chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 say. This is Haggai in that, second, or excuse me, that first stage. <clears throat> he says this, 
Be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, uh, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. Exodus 19. You've got on the other side of the of the sea, and we're at Mount Sinai, and I cut a covenant with you. You remember? Jeremiah said, hey, y'all remember how that's going to be that big of a deal? Even God's referencing it, but he's saying there's more to be done. Get to work. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with my glory, says the Lord. Word. We're back in the land. We got the temple. We got the priests. We got a king. We got the, the prophets are here. What more could we want? And God says, hey, my spirit's among you. I'm one day going to fill this temple. You know, want to know what the problem with that statement is, though? It never happens. It never happens like it did back at the end of Exodus whenever they built the tabernacle and God's presence floods the tabernacle and Moses can't go in, right? And then you have the book of Leviticus where we have all the sacrifices and then at the very beginning of Numbers, Moses is in the tent, right? God's presence was there. We see that happen whenever Solomon dedicates the temple. God's presence fills the temple. We don't actually see that happen with the second temple. And that should tell us something. That should tell us that either God's a liar, right? Or there's more to it. If you remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, whenever uh, David was having this covenant made with God, in chapter 6, David is actually talking with Nathan the prophet and says, hey, I want to build the, the Lord a house. I got a, I got a house. I'm good, but the Lord is out there in a tent. Can I build a house for him? And Nathan initially tells him, like, yeah, man, have at it. And the Lord comes and speaks to him and tells Nathan, like, actually, no, he's a man of war. His son will build it. And in fact, I don't want him to build me a house. I am going to build David a house, a bait. And that word bait can mean literally a house. A lot of times it means a temple, right? But I told you all then there was a third meaning of that word bait. And this is what God was saying to David is I'm going to make your line, your house, your lineage. I'm going to build that up. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he makes a covenant and says, there's never not going to be a king from your line who sits on the throne forever. And then Haggai comes to these people and says, hey, my spirit's among you. Get to work. One day I'm going to fill this house. But we don't actually see the physical temple get filled we must then ask, well, then how does God remain faithful to his covenant whenever he tells the people that he's going to fill this house? When does that happen? Say again. When Jesus is born, is resurrected, I think another answer possibly is at Pentecost, when the Spirit comes and is no longer with us, but it's in us. You see how this works? We're still about six centuries away from that. We're at least 500 years away from that. And here's the point that I want us to see, is that we need Jesus. For all the stuff that has happened historically to this point, we would be tempted to say, ah, that's how God works through history. Everything's good. 
And yet we still have 400 years of silence after Malachi before we even get to your boy Johnny B. We need Jesus. The story's not done. And until then, there's work to be done, right? I think the same can be said for us today who have the Spirit of God. Can you sit on your laurels and do nothing? No, there's work to be done. Until when? Until Christ returns. That's our task. I think in many ways the same text of Haggai chapter 2 is for us. Be strong. You're the representation of God here. You've got the Spirit with you. Get to work. I'm still at work. Are you? Questions about the end of the captivity. Everyone's back in Israel. That was Haggai chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Haggai, H-A-G-G-A-I. Haggai. So you got Haggai, Zechariah, and your boy Malachi. Malachi. Yep. All right, let me give you some final thoughts. Big shocker. I want to read for us some passages that we've read before and a couple of new ones. This is Leviticus chapter 18, verses 26 through 28. Leviticus 18 says this, You shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who are born with you, they did all these abominations, and so the land became unclean. Verse 28, Lest the land vomit you out. You commit these sins that I'm telling you not to do, the land is going to spit you out. And it's going to spit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. And if you remember, that's where we were saying, hey, whenever Joshua comes sweeping through in the conquest, this is why. Because they had sinned. The people of the nations who had occupied the land had sinned. But Leviticus very clearly says, hey, you do it too. What do you think the land is going to do to you? Vomit you out. Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, for their sin. I'm going to punish them for that, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Their names are not going to be floated around anymore. Cyrus is going to make sure of that. Jeremiah 16, 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but it will be said as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where He had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Here's the vain point you need to see. God's faithfulness shines through this story. Clearly, right? Like, have I beat this horse sufficiently tonight? And it shines through in at least two ways. God will judge. He judged Israel for their failure to keep the covenant. He judged the people who occupied the land before they got there because of their sinfulness. He judged the Assyrians because of their wickedness. Used the Babylonians. He judged the northern kingdom because of their wickedness. He judged the southern kingdom because of their wickedness. He judged the Babylonians with the Persians. He will judge, but He will also restore. He will also restore. That is the promise of Jeremiah 16, right? There's going to come a day that you're no longer going to look back to the Exodus. You're going to look back to how God brought you back from that captivity. 
He's going to look back and see God is saving people even in the worst circumstances there. And the last thing, this is just a note, but God's going to use the Persians to entice the Greeks. And there's going to be this cat named Philip of Macedon. And he's going to get pretty far into the, the whole shebang, and then he's going to die. And he's got a son. He's got a kid named Alex. And that dude, in about 250 years, is going to sweep through every bit of the Persian Empire in about 15 years. And that is how we go. Like, literally, that's the answer for how is the Old Testament written in Hebrew and the New Testament is written in Greek? Because of the Persians and the Greeks and their fights. That's how we get to that point. But I don't want to miss. The reason we get here is because of God's covenantal faithfulness. How is relationship going to be restored? Only, ever, always because of God's covenantal faithfulness. Word? All right. Comments, questions. Yes, Paul. Yeah, so the question is, why is there... Uh, not such a neat and tidy chronology as to when the exile begins and when it ends is essentially your question, like the order of those three different stages. Um, part of that is because we're trying to date off of um, known events. So whenever Belshazzar is the king, technically he's not the king, right? Whenever Babylon falls, he's technically not the king. And so whenever you look at Babylonian records, you know what they don't refer to? X year of King Belshazzar. So now we've kind of got to do backwards math to try to figure out when that happened, right? Same thing happens with Cyrus, Artaxerxes, Xerxes. Um, in fact, King Xerxes from Esther, that's not his Persian name. He goes by a different name in Esther. It's escaping me right now. One of y'all could probably look it up. It's in literally like the first three or four verses of Esther. That, that is King Xerxes, but he has a different name. And so now we're trying to put chronological records and trying to equate two different people with two vastly different names, and it's just messy sometimes. That's the way ancient documents work. Um, there's, even, uh, there's even a thing called the, uh, the Cylinder of Cyrus, and supposedly this is a uh, written in an early cuneiform and uh, Persian script of the declaration of the Jews being sent back. We have the Cyrus Cylinder, but people doubt whether or not that was actually a thing that was from Cyrus. And so we've got to work through the historical problems of like when those things happen. And so that's why the dates kind of get a little goofy. But what I would say is, even with the goofiness of those dates, when you start lining them up, you know what they remarkably look really close to? 70 years. And so I think that there's, there's some typology and some symbology in that number of 70 um, because there's 70 years because there have been 70 Sabbaths that hadn't been kept. Um, and so years worth of punishment for how many times they had failed to keep the Passover, year of Jubilee, and those types of things. That's where the number 70 comes from. But 
yeah, historically, that's the problem. Your second part of your question was, is there a benefit in trying to read it chronologically? Whenever we went through our Bible reading plan, we actually did that. Whenever we were in Nehemiah and Esther, did you notice, or uh, Nehemiah, Esther, and Ezra, we kind of kept bouncing back and forth between those three books. It's because they chronologically, they're not sequenced um, in the Hebrew canon or in the English canon. So there is benefit to that, but we kind of got to recognize it's not so hard and fast on the dates like we like it as modern people. Does that answer the question, Paul? Or John? Yep. Uh, I did a quick internet search uh, to make sure. Something like 98, 99% of Israel was dead. Yeah. Yeah. So the comment there is nearly 90%, 99% of Israel is dead. Yeah. Yeah, so if you've ever heard the term the 10 lost tribes of Israel, that's really more associated with the Assyrians whenever they wiped out the northern kingdom. But when you got the 10 tribes in the north and whatever's left of Judah, which was the largest of the tribes, and only 20,000 dudes remain, period. 20,000 people, let me phrase that. 20,000 people, when that was literally just the cavalry force that Saul mustered in his first act as king. Like... Don't you think Saul would have got better as time went along and he could muster more forces that were even larger? The answer to that is yes. But on his first shot, he got 20,000 cavalrymen from Judah, and that's all that ever make it out alive from Jerusalem. That is, that is wild, because that's not counting any women. That's not counting any children. Not counting any old folks. That's, it's crazy. Yeah, so that's a well-taken point. Yes, sir. Okay. Back to Israel, yeah. Yeah, and depending upon your um, eschatological leaning, you might put more or less importance on the land and Israel as an ethnic people, Jews returning to that land. You can put a different level of importance in that. Great. Here, there, beyond, doesn't matter because what, what Haggai says is there's more work to be done and we know there's more that's coming and eventually the critical thing is not all of the Jews, it's one Jew. It's one Jew that matters the most, right? And so that's why we focus on Christ. And for all the other details about eschatologically what will and won't happen, I don't know. But what I will say is Christ is coming back. I know that whenever He comes, He's going to make everything right. Even if, even if we have more work to be done and that God is still working and He's going to be faithful to judge Babylon, well, He's going to be faithful to judge everything and put everything right. Yeah? That's what I do know. Joe. One of the, one of the things that's helped me in thinking through this conversation about this is the Celts, particularly as we're coming into Advent, Christmas time, as we look to the genealogy mm-hmm. of Christ, this gives context to those because if you think about the, the massive levels of depopulation 
you know, in the Holy Land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like this is, like you said, this is, this is literally a trajectory of God's faithfulness preserving the seed of the woman. Yep. You know, going back to Genesis 3. And the, the fact that Jesus is even, even has a line. Like, that can be traced. It, yep. Nothing short of right. Right. And so, I mean, that's what the tagline here is that seeing God through history, like that's, he works through history. And sometimes it's through revolutions like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Incidentally, let's look at that real quick. This is what we have left. Oh, hang on. We are basically done. The next two weeks are we're going to talk about the Greeks. College students, y'all may or may not be here for the one after that. You have to catch us online. Sorry. Unless you want to hang around after classes are over. But the last week, we're going to talk about the Jewish revolts and rebellions. These cats named the Maccabeans. A dude named the Hammer? Yes. Um, just so you know, the next two weeks are my favorite thing that I've been looking forward to here because, frankly, we're ignorant of how we got from Cyrus and the Persians, and now the Romans are in charge, and they're using Greek. What is going on, right? We're going to answer that over the next two weeks. All right, any other questions before we finish up with our session tonight? Yes, Sue. Yes, I knew it was an A. Say it again. Give it your best shot. Just say it with confidence. You're going to be right. Yes, you heard that. Go look at Esther. What was the verse? Do you have it? Yeah. Esther 1.1, right? That's Xerxes. That is him. It's just, but that highlights the issue that we were talking about with Paul earlier is that you've got cats using multiple names. Daniel and his whatever Babylonian names were. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Paul, do you remember their Hebrew names? Yeah, neither do I. Nobody does. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? All right. Belteshazzar. Yeah, there you go. There you go. See, learned you something. That one's for free. All right. So we told y'all at the last uh, business meeting that we were going to announce whatever our next uh, session for our Equipping Institute um, was going to be. And so next spring, we're actually going to be working through First John. So we're going to go in line by line. We're going to take 15 weeks and we're going to hit maybe seven verses a week is what we're going to cover. Um, and we're going to hit every single word of 1 John. Um, so there you have it. That starts on January 24th. Word. So we got next week, the week after. Then there's no more Wednesday nights until January 24th. You come here for a meal, it's going to be you. And that's it. Okay. <laughs> Um, and generally we take that whole time off with Christmas and there's other stuff going on. You got shopping to do and cookies to bake or whatever. I don't know. Whatever you do. Yeah. That's what's going on there. Let me pray for us and we'll send us out. Yeah. The prayer meeting stuff will still be going on. Yes. But we won't be doing the meal, mission journey, kids, youth. I think it's still going on. I think. Yes. I think youth is still going on, but we won't be in here. Let me pray. Father, we thank you um, for the way that we can see you working through history. God, I thank you for the blitz that we have made all the way through multiple centuries, it seems like. God, I thank you for the way in which you 
are good and you are divine and your omnipotence and your sovereignty shines through that yes you are just and that you judge but you are also the one who restores in your omnipotence in your sovereignty and in your goodness and so father we plead um, for mercy in our own sinfulness we thank you for christ that he makes a way for us to be made right with you and that we can have a relationship be restored because of your covenantal faithfulness um, father i stand in all of that and I pray that even as we talk about these things tonight, uh, folks listen to it after the fact online. God, I pray that you would drive these truths down into our hearts and they would make real impact for us as we live throughout the week. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.